Hi, I'm Susanna Kalchich and you're listening to Life in Practice podcast. I'm curious about the big questions in life and how we can experience more meaning and fulfillment every day. Join me as my guests share their challenges, successes and what it means to put our purpose, our values and our lives in practice. Hello and welcome to Life in Practice podcast. This is your host, Susanna. And today my guest is my dear friend, uh, Celia Peachy. She's a public speaker, an artist, activist and alchemist. (laughs) Welcome, Celia. Thank you for having me, Susie. So um, Celia and I uh, connected uh, quite a couple of years ago now over our shared interest and passion for personal development uh, spirituality, uh, relationships, communication, so many, many topics. And, uh, yeah, we did Tony Robbins together, UPW. That That's was, right. We did. That was, a an amazing experience that I think kind of brought our friendship even closer. Definitely. It crystallized, um, a whole new level of energy between us, didn't it? About what it takes to really be, uh, the ultimate alchemist of our lives, which is what we've been exploring together as you've been an integral part of my growth as, as much as I'm sure I have yours. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Like you've brought so much, um, so much to me, like, um, but we, we can go, we'll, we'll go into that as, as <laughs> uh-huh. we, as we go. But, um, what I wanted to like start off with first, like, um, have you always had this um, interest for personal development and spirituality or like, is it something that was kind of there as a seed when you were a child or is it something that kind of you gradually got into or maybe you had an experience that kind of woke you up to something? Wow. Yeah. Quite a question. So there's so much within that. So the journey really mm. became noticing when I was back home growing up through teenage years how my friends were making choices about their lives and none of it resonated with me I was always hungry to 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 get education it because I just felt that school wasn't offering me what I knew I was hungry for on some level and it took a while to figure that out as as it does with all of us it's been it's been a long winding journey of exploration so with regards to the spiritual aspect I guess drama school was the first my first port of call of understanding that I'm an instrument and that I have to clear my blocks in order to to be able to be present and facilitate something else to come through me so I wouldn't have necessarily called it spirituality at the time but through certain wake-up calls through different exercises and understanding how much it takes for you to just be present with one thing and really focus on studying it and practicing it in order to master it I think then I realized that I needed mind training and that's when drama school really helped me understand we did movement exercises so we were understanding how to move the breath with the movement with the words how does another character breathe how do they perceive the world and that's I think indirectly I started on the journey of empathy what does another person feel how do I understand from their perspective because I felt misunderstood growing up and I wanted greater understanding therefore I needed to understand the human condition and it was through acting that I actually started to get to grips with history in the sense that these people 
in history books are real people. They had experiences. So then I guess you start to open up the whole journey of, of life through, you know, evolution through history. Um, so with regards to spirituality, I think drama school opened me up to that, 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 that I'm a vessel for information. Uh, and then it was an emotional breakdown, breakthrough, because I think when you study anything artistic, it challenges all your preconceived ideas because all of a sudden you're not following someone else's prescription. You're asked to, 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 to offer something of yourself, which means you need to be seen, you need to be vulnerable, and you need to trust yourself. And so that means you crack. And um, that's when I first had my, my first awakening at drama school. And then it's been a journey from then of consistent work in different ways to, to meet myself uh, on, the, on the path of creative exploration and healing. And so call it what you will. It's all been spiritual. Mm. Yeah, no. Um, so this like kind of theme of um, creativity and the um, creative process. I've, I've had a, um, a couple of people who I interviewed um, before and we um, discussed this a bit. And I mean, from my perspective on it, I wonder if it's something that you agree with, is that the creative process itself is kind of a spiritual experience because when you tap into t like true creativity, it's almost, it's not you who's actually creating, you're actually um, tuning into whether you want to call it like collective consciousness. And in your words, as you said, like you're, you're kind of used as a vessel mm -hmm. for that communication or that project or whatever. Mm -hmm. Is that something that? Yeah, resonates? I think, I think through a spiritual practice, it's allowed me to let go of any rigidity, fear, preconceived ideas and allow something new to come through, which is more playful, more fearless and more spontaneous because, you know, we're creatures of habit. So unless you have a practice that allows you to observe your patterns and show up with another character's patterns to actually really perceive them and then allow them to to be expressed through you you do have to be of service to something higher so yeah I would I would definitely say that it's about being an instrument for good that's where your limitless capacity comes through mm. and just what you talked about like exploring different blocks because I think within creativity also, um, that's where the um, where the um, ego shows up a lot because I think I know in a way it's our our egos that that block the kind of the smoothness of the creative the creative process. What do you think? Totally, totally. So, as you know, I've got this alter ego aspect called neurotica, and she's the one that that creates the excuses and the reasons and the judgments to 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 not allow herself to be playful or a fool or align with values and vulnerability it's all about defensiveness and holding it together and looking good but not necessarily feeling good and you know life is messy and when we can actually make peace and be there for ourselves in our mess that's when we start to make real progress I believe anyway because I'm not adding insult to injury I'm not beating myself up and I'm allowing myself to feel energized by observing okay, I've made a mistake. Okay, I'm not perfect. Okay, that person's done it better than me. You just don't give up. You allow yourself to, to, to go on that journey. And, and I think that's where the ego can get in the way because it doesn't, it's trying to save you from getting hurt or humiliated. Totally, yeah. Um, 
But just to backtrack just a little bit, um, so you said you had the um, awakening um, uh-huh. in your drama school. So what 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 exactly happened to you there? What was the realization? Mm. What, what did you what did you wake up to? Okay, so when I went to drama school, it was the first month into drama school, full of ambition, as you can imagine, all these young, you know, I was in my 20s. I was like, this is it. I'm going to Hollywood. I've got everything that it takes. I worked really hard. I have to say, you know, I was, I wasn't, I didn't have a place to stay. I was squatting before I got there. And I I trained really hard, saved up, worked hard to get a private teacher. No. uh, And then I pray, I, I did the private classes and got into one of the top drama schools. So I got in thinking, you know what? I've got what it takes. Then we go in to do different exercises, which which really open up the psyche and your emotional capacities and um, a whole well that you don't even know is within you. So we did this exercise called the emotional recall. They don't actually do it anymore because what you're accessing is, is potential traumas. So what happened is we were asked to bring in an, an, an object that either made us happy or it made us sad. I brought in a stone that my mother painted at a particular point in in our lives, in in her life. And then I brought in my nan's necklace, which was a gold medallion, which was a big one on it. And then it it had me, uh, a small one on it, which represented me. It was like me and her. So I thought that the necklace was going to make me sad because my nan had passed and that the stone would make me happy because my mother had painted it and it symbolized a moment in time that was a happy childhood moment. However, when we did the breathing on it, we all were in a room, we were all asked to turn out to face the wall and we have to breathe on the object. And and it's kind of, it's an object endowment exercise almost, so the object holds energy. So when we did this breathing exercise, what I realized as I was doing it is that my nan's necklace actually brought me quite a lot of happiness. It was the sound, the jingle that, I could hear when she walked into a room, uh, she represents a lot of love and stability in my life. The stone, I had almost like an out-of-body experience. I was able to have a bird's eye view at a certain point in my life when this stone was painted. And it was a happy moment that was sabotaged by a lot of deceit and a lot of distrust and a lot of unprocessed trauma on my mum's side. And so once I saw, I felt, if I, it's really difficult to kind of say this, but I felt a lot of resentment towards my parents because I realized that I'd been brought into the world without really understanding what it, what it meant to be a parent. I felt neglected. I felt abandoned. And this stone held a lot of awareness of a certain time in my life where my mother's unprocessed trauma projected itself onto the happiness of where we were and it it destroyed it because she wasn't present it was potentially now her it was act her tra- her trauma that was activated through my awareness in that exercise was potentially post trauma um postnatal depression after my brother of her trauma that was unprocessed from her childhood that got activated by the happiness stroke sadness because obviously it's hormonal um, so it's it's quite complex, but it's where something isn't dealt with, it builds up. So anyway, I had this out-of-body experience where I could see this time in my life and I felt like, wow, I realized I'd normalized a lot of 
trauma and a lot of neglect. And although I didn't want to blame my parents, I came out, a lot of us were very upset from the exercises. There were so many people crying. But you're not given uh, any therapy or debriefing after such an exercise. You're just told, oh, it's break time now. Go and have a cigarette. Go and have your lunch. And we're all processing really deep things that we had no idea was going to come up. Wow. We were not warned. So I'm hyperventilating almost, you know, like, oh my God, you know, the amount of pain and breakdown and miscommunication and misunderstanding in the relationships because the stone represented my mother's third marriage and a time that was really happy in our lives. However, because of her own process trauma, there was a breakdown of that aspect in our lives due to due to her essentially pushing away a lot of love in her life because she was, you know, like all of us, once we get there, it's the one thing that we want that we push away because y you can't lose what you haven't had. So anyway, it was, it really represented a sadness because I saw the destruction of the happiest moment in our lives due to, yeah, due to that. And I don't want to go too, too deeply mm -hmm. into it. But anyway, after that exercise, I, um, I had a meltdown. I had my first, what you call breakdown, spiritual awakening. And everybody was kind of looking at getting upset about their costumes. Oh, my costume's not this, my costume's not that. I'd literally had a moment where I couldn't even think about costumes. I couldn't think about an acting career. Mm. I had to go back to basics and make peace with the fact that I really didn't know what my values were. I didn't know where I stood with my parents. And I got very, very ill. Um, I got a, a condition, a skin condition. It's mild now, but at the time as an actress, it was psoriasis and it meant a lot. And it was a lot of anger coming to the surface. And so I basically, I tried to stay at drama school, but it just wasn't possible. My life was showing me that I really needed to go back to basics and learn to love and learn to make peace. And when I had to take a year out of drama school in order to just look at my life, um, my parents had to come together for the first time to support me emotionally. And I was 23. Wow. And it was the first time that I'd felt like um, a child. Even though, because I'd always had to pull it together and make it through and, and almost mother my own mother. So I realized so much through that exercise, through breathing. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't think they do that exercise anymore, but that for me was incredible realization a very painful one but you know I had to take a year out of drama school I went traveling I fell in love I I kind of started to understand what was important in life and although ambition is important yeah I realized that I had to really come from the heart about why I want certain things that I needed to be validated from within mm. and and you know what it's like drama school high hopes Hollywood it's a lot of external validation that my soul was telling me was not going to help me. Wow. Yeah. Does that resonate um, with your question, with your answer? Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I can definitely see like, and thank you for going into the detail, detail of how, how the actual awakening happened. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, we realize things, as you say, that we have normalized for so long mm -hmm. and that when it comes to light, it's like, oh, wow, that's been there the whole time. Yeah, and I think I think with the journey going on to that, it's like as you realise how much 
love ha was lacking in your life, you have to really master the art of not going into victim about it, but just being grateful for the mm -hmm. realization and what we have now mm -hmm. moving forward. So that was the beginning of my, my, my spiritual awakening, I guess, is that my ego was completely <laughs> just smashed, you know, with hopes and dreams um, to just really get real about what's important to me, mm. which is family and friends and, and questioning values and sort of figuring out how to live in alignment with them. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so did you go back to drama school? Because then you um, kind of explored spirituality a bit, a bit further. I, I took a year out of drama school and just took a look at life, you know, and went traveling and uh, fell in love. Mm -hmm. And um, then I did go back. Because I, I'm someone that loves to, you know, I finish what I start regardless of the traumas and the challenges that life is. We must follow through because life will break our hearts and we mustn't break our own hearts. So I did go back to drama school. Mm -hmm. That was powerful. Say it again. Life <laughs> can break our hearts, but we mustn't break our own heart. Yeah. You know, we have to be there for ourselves. And I think that's that for me when I realized that no one's going to do it for me. Mm -hmm. I need to show up and finish what I started. So I did, I went back and completed drama school. I left it on a good note. Mm. Um, but I think that the growth that I went through on the year out really helped me become a better actress. Yeah. Because I understood the vulnerability and the fragility of different characters and the level of empathy that I talked about in the beginning was really viscerally, it landed. Wow. And um, then obviously the, the relationship with your mum is has been such a, I think, a key part mm -hmm. to your journey. Um, can you speak a bit more into that, how how that has has had an impact on you? My relationship with my mum, you know, she was a fabulous person, but she was very young when she gave birth to me. So she was 21 years old. Now, when I was 21 years old, I did not have my act together. You know, yeah. uh, we're all mature at different levels. So my mum was really close. We were really close. We were really good friends. I think as a mother, she didn't really know how to operate, you know, and um, there was a lot of unprocessed trauma. And I think, you know, I'm very particular now about people. Why are you bringing a child into the world? Do you know what you're really bringing in? It's a sacred commitment to another being. And um, so she was a really good soul, really good person, great sense of humor. However, that was a different generation. And there was a lot of unprocessed trauma, a lot of mental uh, health issues. And it was like, I was always trying to heal my mother. I was the mother to my mother. And so even though I got an opportunity to touch on my own dreams, I felt like, which was the name of my play, girl constantly effing interrupted. It was like, oh, here we go again, something else, something else to interrupt the flow. But now I realized the obstacles are the journey. You know, um, so when I, I, I gather, when you're asking me about my mum, you're always asking me about the tragedy that happened. So I think growing up was very, I didn't realize, as I said to you, the level of trauma that I had normalized, trying to cope as a teenager with a mother that had mental health issues that also had no real understanding of, of really healthy love. And so she got married to the man of her dreams. She, it did happen. It happens. My younger brother's father 
he's a, a very kind, resilient gentleman. And um, I think that, as I said before, the postnatal depression after my brother activated a, a, a trauma that was never dealt with from her childhood. And therefore that marriage broke down. Then once they'd had a divorce, she realized what had happened and she kind of never forgave herself. It was very sad, even though she had her own house, she was now a single mother with this child that she didn't really need to be. That man loved her, deeply loved her, but she, that purity of love was alien to her because of her own childhood betrayal from her own father. And sadly after that, it's my feeling, I can't speak for anyone else in the family that she never forgave herself. And so her energy dipped, she was a woman on her own, and she was lonely and she didn't she didn't have a strong sense of self that me and you now understand is so vital to our point of attraction to how we allow people and we educate them on how to treat us so she met someone very innocently while walking the dog one day who had just been out of got out of prison for less than a year for murdering another woman so it wasn't like a domestic abuse scenario where she had an abusive partner. She met someone who was literally looking to prey on a vulnerable woman on her own. But did she know that he was a previously convicted? No, not initially. Yeah. She didn't. And it's really complex because there's, there's a short space of time and there's so many, so many kind of details within the unfolding of, of her murder. Let's just say it. So, yeah, in order to clarify it for people listening, after my mother's third divorce, <laughs> third time, she she never really recovered. And when she m was innocently walking the dog, she met someone who seemed very charming and intelligent, but they had an agenda. They, were, they weren't just a guy that she met. This was someone that was looking to prey on someone. And so she, she dated this person for a short period of time. And sadly, he was taken advantage of. And he was a cold, calculated killer. And he, he befriended my little brother and made, you know, um, every attempt he could to pull the wool over everybody's eyes that, that she may have introduced him to in that short period. Once she figured that he was not the real deal and that things weren't adding up, she did call the police. She, as you know, the sad story, she cried out for help. They downgraded the call. They didn't take... Uh, her cries for help seriously. Someone was meant to come and visit her. And in between the time that they were meant to come and they didn't, he killed her. Oh, God. And he brutally murdered my mother. And it's been that journey of recovery ever since because I knew that it wasn't going to end too well because of the traumas along the way that hadn't been processed and healed. Because, you know, healing is a long journey. So that was in 2008. And... You know, even the police took the word of a convicted killer on her doorstep when she'd been crying out for help and she's dead feet from the door. And so the catalogue of errors that led to this this case and the synchronicities that allowed this to happen are unprecedented. And so ever since, as you're well aware, uh, I've been campaigning and an activist for healthy relationship education, domestic abuse, raising awareness... But the real twist in the tale for me is that I think because even though I've experienced domestic abuse on so many subtle levels, subtle and extreme, you know, where someone's either manipulative or got an undercurrent or they're trying to be possessive to where it's actual extreme violence. And where you people just think domestic abuse is 
is the violence or the hitting, and it's not. It starts in the subtle form. So there'd been so much during my childhood that had been present I hadn't been aware of until one day, bang, the worst happens. And you realise, wow, if the worst hadn't happened, I might have condoned and normalised so much because what happens is that women stay in situations because it's not that bad, but it's awful. But it's he's okay, he's apologised, but it's not that bad. And that's in normal relationship dynamics. Whereas mine was, even though I'd seen a lot of abuse in my mother's patterns, that I'd also taken on board and normalised to some extent, this was not that. This was someone that actually was a cold, calculated killer that came in and had an agenda and then just killed her. So can you imagine that it's like making peace with the fact that it wasn't a normal domestic abuse scenario. This was a psychopath. Yet you've normalised abuse every step of the way and then you have that realisation and then the worst of the worst happens. It's just mind-blowing. So it's been now almost 12 years of campaigning and consistent healing and therapy and creative expressions to, to come to terms and find ways of activating my pain and channeling it into something of purpose so that I can actually contribute the best of myself to um to society I guess and not not be the victim you know be the pioneer be the alchemist mm. because we all have something to overcome some more challenging than others yeah um, I think one of the things that always um struck me when you tell that story is um when you found out and your uh. how you had that response I mean I have no idea where you found that strength that wisdom that insight you know it's just beyond me okay so yeah thank you uh, just to contextualize for the audience I guess that before my mum's death this man had created so much distance between her and I that I, I thought that she didn't want anything to do with me anymore. I'd been trying to help someone, trying to help, but there was always something in the way or there was a miscommunication and there was a disinterest, but I didn't realise she was being controlled in the background and I just reached a point where, <laughs> I'm sure the audience can 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 resonate with this, where I was struggling to align thought, word and deed. You know, I would say one thing, but I wasn't doing what I said I wanted to do. And no holiday was going to fix all this multitasking and this obsessive compulsive achievement disorder, but feeling like I wasn't really making progress. So a year previous before I surrendered to doing a Vipassana, which is a 10-day silent meditation retreat, I found out about it and I was like, who on earth would do that? But gradually, since that, that time of first ever finding out about it, that year passed and things hadn't changed and I was desperate to just make my dreams come true and there was no one holding me back but myself. And so I, I went to visit my mother just before I went on this retreat and it was sad, you know, she came out of the house and um, she gave me a lift to the station and I didn't know that this man may have been in the house at the time. She got in the car, she gave me a lift to the station and... Um, I was at my wit's end. It was her birthday and I said, look, you know, when I come out from this 10-day silent meditation retreat where you meditate for 10 hours a day, I will take you to the Ritz or somewhere beautiful, wherever you want for your birthday. And she said to me, um, 
Celia, I feel so much stronger when you're around. I love you. You're good at everything you do. Just go and do what you need to do. Um, I wish you were around more often. She hugged me and she hugged me like she didn't want to let me go. But at that point, I just knew that I needed to be there for myself. So I go on the retreat and my ego is telling me, don't go, go on holiday, you're mad. Why are you going to meditate and sit still for 10 hours for 10 days? <laughs> you're, you're a crazy woman. But I knew that I, I had to train my mind. I was chaos and I needed to just be, figure out how to get myself to do what I needed to do. So I go on this retreat and whilst I'm on that retreat, I'm having downloads. You know, you train your mind through your body, the monkey mind that's running off with scenarios to the past, to the, to the future and the past. And you're training your mind to release what's called sankharas, which are the stories the body stores. So say if someone said, Susie, you're not really good at that. And they're at school. You might go, oh, and you carry that in your body this kind of apologetic. So what you do when you meditate is you sit in a very neutral position and you just train your mind into understanding craving and attachment, which are the two things that lead to misery. So you start to understand why you've got impulses, cravings and attachments, things that you're autopilot reacting rather than responding. So you get to understand why, why you are reacting, why you are hooked into certain things because of the stories you've been telling yourself because of, the root causes. So it's like a, a real deep training within the, the body's wisdom. Anyway, the training is deep. And while I was there, literally discovering and exploring peace for the first time, like I realized I didn't know what peace was. I'm really getting to grips, like peace of mind. The first five to six days were horrific. You know, getting beyond your own chaos and your own neuroses anyway once I broke through the other side I was experiencing heaven you know within myself however the contrast is is that whilst I was experiencing that my mum was being tortured and threatened and bullied and was in fear for her life and I had no idea but I tried to save my mum on numerous occasions and this time I had to do something for myself. And it just so happens that at that time, I had to be my own saviour. She was murdered while I was on the retreat. And uh, whilst I was in the retreat, you, you know, you've got, you've got no phone. No one could get hold of me. So at the end of the retreat, we're given our phones back. And I'm having an epiphany, you know, I've told all my, all my mind's told me this person's like this and created all these stories about who these people are. And at the end, when you actually talk, you have another epiphany. This is a bullshit machine. It's telling me shit that about this person and about that person, judgments and assumptions that just aren't helpful. They're separating and they're not true. So I was having an amazing, like really... I was. I just felt like I've discovered something. I've this. I've achieved something that's so beyond anything any institution could have ever given me. Like real insight into my own self and my own crap. So I felt really high, and I'd followed through. And I just. It was great to connect with people beyond the mind from the heart. Anyway, I 
had the phone and I thought, no, I'm not going to check the messages. I'm going to allow myself to complete this experience. This is sacred. And um, thankfully, at the end of that retreat, I didn't get on the train. I was meant to get on the train. Someone said, oh, you know, do you fancy coming in the car with us? And I got in the car and I thought, okay, now's the time to check my messages. And my ego was like, oh my God, I'm so popular. <laughs> There's all these messages on my phone. And I listened to the voicemail and I got some from the police saying, your mother's missing. Then I get a message from my mum's best friend saying, oh, Celia, something's urgent happened. You need, to, you need to call me. So I said to them, can you stop the car? Stop the car. I get out and I go into this field. I phone my mum's best friend and she says, Celia, I'm really sorry. But your mum's been murdered. And as you can imagine, I just I just went into complete shock. And I think I screamed. And then I was in this mad space, you know, this just this really peaceful place. I mean, imagine I've just been trained for ten days, for ten hours a day, to train my mind not to react but to respond. And all of a sudden, I did something I'd never done before. I was so present. And I just said, this either makes me or breaks me. And I, I clapped my hands and was just like, it makes me. And in that moment, it was like crystallizing that decision. That was the space between stimulus and response as to whether I went into the victim or I went into the victor. Or if I went into, you know... It was just incredible because I've never done that before and I haven't done it since. And I just stood there and anchored that intention, that decision. And then I had all this download of symbols and messages. And the message that I received was, be faithful. The balance is being addressed. And I walked back to the car really, really calm. And there was just a, a peace and an, an ability to observe that I would never have had if I'd not gone on that retreat. I would have been, I'd be dead today because I had no tools. I, I would have, you know, because I still had a meltdown, obviously, after that. Everything went to... Yeah, because I was going to say, was that experience? Because kind of, it, it's like, it's almost like shock. Yeah. You don't feel it. It's like the, the grief and the, the anger and the sadness, that kind of tends to to happen a bit later I think obviously the body goes into shock immediately but having made that decision I went into observation and I sat in the car and there was a woman that smoked in the car you know I just stopped smoking before that retreat because before that I had already just cleaned up my act from drug addiction and you know it was a year before my mum's death I'd done a lot of work cleaning up my act that was part of my other spiritual um process was going to AA and Cocaine Anonymous and understanding what it meant to be clean and take responsibility for my resentments and clean house, literally. So that, you know, thank God I'd done some of that groundwork. But when I sat in the car, I could have reached for that cigarette. I could have compounded. I could have made loads of decisions that would have just compounded, added insult to injury. I've got every excuse to hit the fuck it button, but I didn't. And we went to this pub and we sat and I ordered a tea. And I just sat there and they were like, we're so honored to be with you and to, to hold this space with you. This is incredible. Like, you're so loved. And I could have been on a train on my own. Or if I had checked my phone while I was on that retreat, I could have destroyed everyone's retreat. 
You know, everyone was having a sacred awakening. Mm. Thank God I was in a really safe, small space with people that knew how to hold me in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. Because if I'd been on that train with strangers on my oh own, my God. could you imagine? I was in a field and then I was, you know, carefully driven home. Mm. Gosh, it's so many years on and, yeah, you know, it's so profound because I'm so grateful. Anyway, so that moment crystallized everything. But I still, I was in shock. I got back to my apartment and I was making jokes. It's not every day your mum gets murdered and blah, blah, blah. And then someone else told me about someone else doing really well. There was a friend came around and they're like, oh, something's happened for someone else. And I was like... I've just put myself back together again. Mm. And now this. Mm. And I I don't know if it resonates with anyone else, but I just slid down the wall. And I was like, why? You know, I'm having to pick up the pieces again and put myself back together. Yeah. And this is what it felt like. Drama school, dream comes true. Trauma happens, have a meltdown, have to go back. You know, it's patterns. But this was the ultimate test. And it's been a real journey to to show up, to fight for justice, because it wasn't just a murder, it was a complete failure by the criminal justice system and the police. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, it's been a journey of the microcosm and the macrocosm. Mm. But that moment and that, that meditation retreat is the reason I'm alive, definitely. Because mm. the mind is everything, you know. Um, but still, it's still like it gave you that that strength as well, you know. Because as you say, it's so easy. I think like um, most people would go down the route of just why me, which obviously it's and 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 stay there. Uh-huh. But the fact that you actually chose, and I would I would ask you, was that kind of a defining moment where you're like, I'm going to be the alchemist of my own life I'm gonna turn this pain into um purpose or you're gonna it's it's you know it's really strange it's almost like part of me can take responsibility for that moment because I'd done the priming yeah I showed up out of desperation and divine intervention I happened to be on that retreat because I was I knew that I was the only person holding myself back from all the things I said I wanted to do and that I needed to somehow get this to work for me but there's also it was out of my hands it was a higher power because I'd never done that I couldn't have planned it it would just it makes me and although everything fell apart that stayed with me this either makes me or breaks me and it wasn't coming back to talking about being the ultimate alchemist of your life (laughs) that was manifest that that kind of superhero mentality that I took on board was because everything kept going wrong you know loads of things after that because you imagine you're in the vibration of grief if anyone talks about the law the law of attraction I was in grief and shame that meant that I was vulnerable to other people's agendas and I had to seek help to find strength to understand boundaries to to lift my energy to find my strength to to build my trust my mum was raped and murdered and her bank accounts emptied I'm lucky my brother is alive my whole life, my whole structure for faith in humankind was destroyed. It was yeah. already fragile. I was going to say, like, how on earth do you, like, 
start to try and trust anybody or even trust life itself? Well, that's interesting because if you think about that defining moment, that was life speaking through me and it was so mystical. It was so mystical and that's what I think my intention was just to get a grip of my own self, to be there for myself and stop abandoning myself in addiction or gossip or blame. And the Vipassana helped me realize it was the ultimate bonding experience. Take responsibility, take responsibility, be present. And to, to cultivate an understanding of peace, which is a miracle. And to really understand there's, an, there's a critic and that's not me. I can observe it. I don't have to be it. I don't have to identify with it. It wants to destroy and attack everything. That's not me. I'm a lover. I'm a faithful person. I believe in things. I believe in the goodness of humanity. Mm. So, yeah, that moment was the, de the defining moment. But as I said, coming back to Ultimate Alchemist, <laughs> where everything kept going wrong, I had to somehow come home to lightheartedness, thank God to spiritual practice, and go, I'm the ultimate alchemist of my life. I've got this. <laughs> so you, after something like what happens with mum's murder, you go in kind of like grief, you go into kind of like a delusional time and space where you're, you're kind of, semi, you're in a parallel universe. It's like the whole world goes back to normal in some ways, but you don't, you end, you're on a planet of fucked upness for quite a while, lost in this, this realm of trying to make peace with the spirit world and the material world and and nothing means anything anymore what really means stuff what makes mm. the meaning of life so yeah I <laughs> where everything kept going wrong I was like I'm the ultimate alchemist of my life my powers in my response and I was formulating my own philosophy and so it was helping me realize being a victim is not going to not going to not going to reward me I cannot afford it because people prey on that energy yeah. yeah, and it's it's just, it's not an identity worth identifying with for longer than a second. Yes, I was a victim, it's in the past. And not only that, I'm really clear to, to, to make it crystal clear to everyone now, that's my mother's story. My story is that I'm here with you today, I'm present, I can love my emotions and, and elevate myself into the present moment and have some sort of, of compartmentalization that that's her story. I'm a sovereign being. I'm here to contribute the best of myself to, to life now and thank life for the wisdom that's given me. Because if, if it hadn't happened, I'd still be fight, fretting over petty stuff. And we still get absorbed in that occasionally. But in the main, you know, my, I've got values that I live by that it's made me the woman I am. Mm. I've, I've fought for other women. I have found friendship I never knew possible. Mm. And I've found strength and discipline and tenacity that uh, I never knew I had. Mm. And, I, and I thank my mother for that because she kind of, her life has been a, a catalyst, a sacrifice for all these other women and for the system to change and for me to use my voice in a way that is really useful. It's not about me and being a Hollywood actress and being famous. It's about making people feel seen and heard and valued mm. um, and allowing myself 
that that privilege as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Sorry. No, so no, emotional. No. no, of course. Like, my God. It's, yeah. Well, it's, it's so important. I mean, like, your um, courage just to show up and talk about this stuff, you know. It's really, like, thank you. Um, but when we think, like, I just want to point back to just something you said about kind of not being a victim. Mm. But then there's, like... A train of thought that people say, "Oh, you're victim shaming," but it's it's not that. No, exactly. But there comes a time when you have to cross over. Yeah, and you can't you can't keep saying like when people would introduce me, "Oh, you've been a victim of domestic abuse," mm. or "You're a survivor." It just didn't inspire me. It didn't empower me. It made me feel like I was still stuck in the problem. And so, through working with um, Safe Lives Charity. I'm also an ambassador, as you know, for Amnesty International uh, and a Peaceful Solutions Charity. I'm studying nonviolent communication because I believe that real empowerment comes through shifting your language and also not, not saying don't, but in energetically sending a, a signal of antagonizing, you know, because we're all, we've all got a reason somewhere along the line um, to be angry and to be, you know, to retaliate and to throw things out at life. This is reason why. And I choose not to do that. And so through working with Safe Lives, I said, look, if we're going to inspire other women to come out of the darkness, survivor and victims, not it's not really stepping over that threshold. So I said, let's, let's go for pioneers because you're a pioneer of your experience. You're overcoming your patterns and stepping into the unknown. What? Who is Susie at her most empowered? Who is Susie when she's in her goddess? Who is Susie when she's in command and in charge of her destiny? Who is Susie when she's present and playful and not lost in her story or her parents' story or all the excuses? And so when you're a pioneer, you're in the unknown realm of creativity, of possibility. Mm. Uh, Joe Dispenza talks about that. You know, in the unknown realm, you can create anything. Mm. And he also talks about in his book, Supernatural, how people's responses when they first find out terrible news so someone found out her partner died in some tragic way. She went into such shock and trauma that it created all this disease in her body that she literally went into debilitated state and then had to undo all of that and then come back to healing. If I hadn't have been on the Vipassana, and I still had loads of health issues after my mum died because of the grief, because of whatever, but I'd also knew not to eat cakes and sugar. I let go of the smoking, even though I picked things up. It was, I never compound and it was never like what I used to act like. I had I had a, I had a space between every decision because I had a practice. Mm. Which is why you've called your podcast Life in Practice. You're really keen, and which I totally love. You're really keen to explore life in practice. What practices help you mm. be the empowered present person that allows mm. you to show up and offer the best of yourself to to the people that you love in your life and create something. Exactly, and I think it's um, not just about practices, but how do we practice what we what we value? And it's only the things that we practice consistently that are actually real. They're not a concept anymore because they're being practiced. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, what was but, your question? Yeah, but I just wanted to um, I got, uh, like um, like being a pioneer. But I mm. think. It's important to obviously hold people um, 
accountable um, for for the things that 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 they have done to to hold space for um for what happened and the grief and and the trauma so that goes obviously with to the man who um um murdered your mom and also to the uh police for their for their failings so you know how can we do both kind of hold those people um accountable and let them know so that they fully grasp like what it is that that they've done and how they've you know hurt people but also then come out and from a from a place of being in your words a pioneer so so the whole journey was a pioneering one at the same time people in the press are calling you a victim because in in the society and within the system our family has been a victim of a broken system it's designed to make you want to give up we were told we were lucky to get an inquest article 2 right to life we only got that because of the Human Rights Act. Now, as you know, you were there at my speech at the Human Rights um, Auditorium last year, where people, I, I assumed before my mother's murder that it was, I was that ignorant. I thought it was just for immigrants or I thought it was this. I took for granted as a British white woman that my rights are safe. I didn't ever think that I would be fighting for them in my mum's name as well as my name. So with in relation to the system, me and my family, we're victims. However, personally, as I go into the unknown, I did not know that it was going to be a five-year journey. I was in unknown territory. Personally, even though the label of the system is, is saying I'm a victim, personally, I'm saying I'm a pioneer. I'm a pioneer. So I'm having to resonate a different thing. You're, you know, it's something else. Someone else is taking your identity and plastering the press with victim, victim. But you have to inside say to yourself, pioneer ultimate alchemist pioneer pioneer because you might ever never make it to the finishing line if you're still saying you're a victim it took five years to get an inquest to get some sort of accountability from the police and from uh, the system at large about how the mappers let her down because he shouldn't he should have been tracked from leaving his country into this country and there should have been restrictions put on him but none of that was done and there was no risk assessment for my mother. So there were loads of different things. But again, it comes back to what you're telling yourself. And so I would not allow victim to stick with me. Because otherwise I'd still be full of excuses. You can only allow yourself truly to identify that for a short period. Because, you know, there were times, Susie, as, as you're well aware, when you feel that low, I lay in bed and I thought, you've got every reason to just give up. You've got the perfect excuse. If you want to cop out, this is it you've got the reason and I just couldn't do that mm. I couldn't do that and um it's only because of my spiritual practice that I've been able to observe myself from a higher space yeah yeah my mom didn't have a spiritual practice my dad doesn't have a spiritual practice mm. and so for me it's about having a self-reflective practice what am I thinking what am I saying what am I doing is it in alignment with how I choose to be yeah or am I just being a mess for everybody around me and that takes time and self-compassion because <laughs> it's not an easy journey to put all those fragments together and come home to wholeness and take responsibility for yourself responsibility mm. it was only before her death that I chose to take that responsibility mm-hmm 
And as I took that leap, the the feather bed was there for me. Mm. My own higher self. Wow. So going on that um, healing journey, um, where did that lead you to? What were some of the things that you explored or tried or... How about everything? (laughs) So initially it started with conventional therapies before my mother died. And then I remember telling my therapist what had happened. And she was blown away, you know. And then it went on to a deeper journey of... um, I went back and re-related to Vipassana because I knew that if I didn't go back and revisit at, at the right time that retreat I might not hold true to the practice that saved me in the first place so the Vipassana the therapy AA uh, Alcoholics Anonymous Cocaine Anonymous I continued with doing some of the steps on and off I have been experimenting as you're aware with shamanism I did many years looking into shamanic practices soul retrieval speaking to the soul of my mother my father people that are alive as well as dead and just having saying what I needed to say all that unfinished business and you do a lot of stuff that you're thinking why am I doing this what is this about but you're really looking into how you're relating in that subconscious narrative that's playing out in the background and you bring it right forward And then there's been ayahuasca and plant medicines. But, you know, I'd say to anyone, I've I've been on a very manual journey. Before I did plant medicines, I've done a lot of of writing, meditating, verbalizing with a therapist, doing a lot of the manual work. Because you can't just go to plant medicines and expect that that's going to heal you and fix you. They play a massive part in the journey, should you be open to it. But it's, it's been consistent work. I think it's, I've reached this point now at 11, 12 years. I actually don't have a proper therapist for the first time in years. I am my therapist. I'm able to manage things without going into a drama and without compounding what someone thinks of me into something that I take really personally. I can really be objective about that. Um, and just still advance. Mm. Yeah. It's such a personal journey to actually really let go of blaming everyone else and taking full responsibility for how you show up. Yeah. Absolutely. But then, you know, as I'll say, you know, people also do deserve, I don't want to say to be blamed if that's not the right language, but you know, people who do bad things need to face those consequences, you know. 100%. And, you know, recently I did a yeah. podcast with Real Crime Profile. Yeah. And if you hear me in that, yeah. I am so hard hitting. More than ever, in a way, mm. I've been very, pa- like, diplomatic, so calm. Yeah. Try- doing my best not to blame any, like, to, to hate police. There are good police officers. However, there are lazy neglectful individuals within an institution that is faceless and that is not serving the people in the way that it can and it needs to be held accountable and that's what I did last week with Real Crime Profile. There needs to be changes in the whole system where people and individuals, where they hand over cases, are signed off 
so that victims aren't regurgitating information to strangers when they're already vulnerable and scared. They need to know that there's one person, a point of contact that they can trust and rely on. Mm. So totally hear you. And I've been doing everything I can to really understand just how much they need to be held account. And it's been a long journey. Mm. Because I, you know, you can go into the whole, it's all about love. No, it's not all love and light at all. (laughs) It's, It's light and dark. But it's bringing that darkness to light and saying, do the right thing. Yeah, and looking at the evil in the eye. Mm. And as you know, I I, um, describe evil as live backwards. When we put profit over people, when we put our own agenda over someone else's joy or our own joy because we're we're operating from fear. You know, anything born out of fear is going to have a consequence. So, yeah, it's about bringing bringing it to light and being loving and but really hard, firm. In, in what needs to change yeah absolutely and um just want to ask about uh forgiveness mm-hmm. have you come to a place where you forgive where forgive you... who <laughs> the well, police or the killer both both of them because i can imagine like if any woman or, or you know or man who's experienced something similar they've probably um, felt the same things that that you have and um because i think your story is so um inspiring that that um that that there is a light at the end of the tunnel you know and i'm, I'm sure people want to know like how how did you make peace yeah how did yeah. you get to where you are i mean aside from the like spiritual practices like because i think um i would imagine you you would have to find some kind of forgiveness and peace to be able to move on. Well, it really it really depends on your definition of forgiveness. And when I've done a vipassana retreat before, because I've done about four now, I've trained my mind. I've done service there. I've done four ten day silent meditation retreats. That's not for the faint hearted to mm. be with yourself. Um, and really process that. And a lot came up. And I remember having to buy the book Forgiving the Unforgivable. I read certain stories of the most awful things that humans do to each other. But, you know, my life has given me insight onto a high level of energy, vibration, law of attraction. And so I realized that if I hold on to that grudge and that resentment, that's energy resent. So for me, forgiving is, is giving the pain to a higher purpose. It's letting go of the judgment or the the grievance and holding on to the wisdom. And so with my mother's killer, somewhere along the line, he was corrupted away from love. There must have been a very traumatic childhood there. I don't know the ins and outs. All I know is that that person is deeply, deeply troubled. The police hold them account. Do I forgive? I have to say that in, in forgiveness, I guess, it's, it's letting go of the grudge. I love myself enough to let go of that grudge and say, it's happened. Now what do I do? How can I help prevent other people losing their lives? How can I show up in a way that shows light at the end of the tunnel? And how can I celebrate my life? My life matters. I can't live in the shadow of what happened to my mother. So forgiveness for me 
is empowering myself with the wisdom that I see that I'm a sovereign being and awful things happen to loads of people in this world. Some people suffer more than others and it can either, like what happened after the Vipassana, it can either make me or break me. And I don't say that lightly. Every single day I have that. You, it was because this happened that you can't do that. It's because this happened that you've got this excuse. And you have to use that voice and you have to say, it's because of that I can and I will. And you have to pivot every single time that voice comes up because otherwise you attract what you put out and you cannot afford you have to I have to live in faith that everything that happens is for the greater good there's always someone worse off you know and it's my legacy to my mum to live my truth Mm. we're not our parents You know, the biology belief says that. And I've been studying, as you're well aware, to the nth degree. How do I speak my highest truth? How do I be courageous yet humble? How do I get out of my own way? Be vulnerable but empowered. And that's um, Mm. moment-to-moment thing, I guess. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I've seen from you is like, really breaking the patterns that you've inherited from your parents ruthlessly yes yes and also as we said before this podcast it's like saying the relationship with my father and my mother I took I took it personally for a long time oh it's like this and my father reacts to me like that because there's something wrong with me but as I've got to know him through COVID-19 experience and seen my dad is the sum total of a lot of his patterns in conditioning growing up and we all have different capacities to be emotionally present with each other and I realised he's a good man that has done his best and he has a certain way of being and a certain capacity and I have a certain capacity it's not personal that he can't meet me in certain spaces he has his capacity, I have mine he hasn't had the opportunity to do the certain level of spiritual work that I have in order to have a deeper capacity for love, to hold it, to be intimate, to talk about the things that I need to talk about without melting down or going into denial or judgment. So, yeah, I see that my dad is is a really stable, brave man and I can love him for who he is without feeling like, What's the word? You know, like like I have to fall prey or hold him, re- be resentful, the fact that he couldn't be there for me, really, in a way that I might have wanted after my mum died. Because I've had to deal with it pretty much with my brother and my uncle, but on my own. I carried a lot of that case and um, I've had to be there for myself and cultivate a strong sense of self that no one could take from me, which is what I saw my mother didn't have. So through seeing that in her and where she didn't have that, I had to give it to myself. So that was a gift that that almost like a curse was the blessing to look myself in the mirror and say, you're my best friend. I've got your back. And so it's forgiving our parents. They're doing the best they can with the knowledge and understanding they have. But I guess it's having also distance and space and holding your own boundary to know I can love them from a from a from a a distance or a level of intimacy that's safe for both of us to be in love and not take on that attribute and not to resent it or 
deny it or degrade it or judge it, but just hold us. We're all doing the best that we can. Mm. And yeah, I, I love my father. He has taught me how to command respect <laughs> and how to really see that people are doing the best they can with the knowledge and understanding they have. Mm. And I thank my mum for showing me how to cultivate that strong sense of self mm. inside. Yeah. And I think, would you say that is kind of what the um, the meaning of being the ultimate alchemist is, is transforming that, taking, as you say, the curse and turning it into a blessing, yeah. taking the pain and putting that energy in, in, into purpose. Absolutely. Turning pain to purpose is it because no one, no one in this life gets out without something. And if you haven't had a struggle, you haven't really maybe characterized your full capacity for, for, for your actualization, you know, mm -hmm. because we all have something to overcome. So yeah, it's about turning your pain to purpose. It's about noticing that voice and saying, it's not the reason I can't, it's the reason I can, the reason I am. And to just be really present in how you you respond to life's challenges. Um, yeah. See, I can't believe it. Our one hour is like is up. There's like so much more to talk about. But um, with this interview, I just wanted to kind of set the the context of the experiences that you've had and how you've chosen to um, move through them and what mm -hmm. you choose to create. Um, going forward mm -hmm. and then in later interviews I really want to delve deep into so many things that you know you and I just have such amazing mm -hmm. conversations over that I think will benefit so many people and you know sharing um some of the things what the like your projects that you're in the process of creating mm -hmm. and yeah it's really exciting stuff um that will be um, coming in the near future. Yeah, there's there's many projects to to hold Ultimate Alchemist out there for people to to really claim it as their own, you know, yeah. an identity. It's not personal. Life's challenges are a gift. Should we be willing to 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 seek that silver lining and and seize the day and respond as consciously and as compassionately as possible to life's challenges? Yeah, absolutely. And um, so my last um, two key questions that I ask um, everybody um, what have been some of the key practices that have helped you to overcome challenges and then attain um, success or, or healing maybe so obviously Vipassana meditation is just meditation in general just being able to sit in your discomfort and observe your mind and see it like a blue sky and the clouds are your thoughts and that you have a choice with which, how do you, are you going to identify with that thought? Are you going to let that be your story? Or can you just observe? And I think that liberation from craving and attachment and addic addictions, that's been a big part of it. I understand that not everybody can meditate. So going for a walk, channeling, running's helped me, freshwater swimming, you're getting more than one practice now. But journal writing too. You know, asking, interviewing myself. How am I thinking and how am I feeling about that? What story am I telling myself? What's the story I want to tell myself? How am I getting in the way? How can I get out of the way? Um, and really, it's like my brother said to me, he said, if I spent as much time 
believing in myself as I did doubting myself, imagine what I could create. And I think through journal writing, you really reflect. And without a self-reflective practice, you don't really know who you are. So yeah, I would say writing and having a safe space to reflect on your patterns and letting go of those nightmare narratives and allowing something else to come forward, something more conscious. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think like like from my perspective, the um, ultimate practice is just bringing conscious um, awareness mm -hmm. to the present moment, to your behavior, to everything. Well, it's, it's also what we know a lot about is, is changing your state. I mean, for yeah. years I've got up at the crack of dawn and I've gone running with a running partner and I've jumped in freezing cold water. And out of all of the practices, that freezing cold water has transformed everything because every nerve cell, you know, Wim Hof does it too. It transforms you. You're awake. You're present. Everything shifts within you. And it, it just cleanses you energetically on, a, on another level. So it's about changing your state. So predominantly that's been years of conditioning myself like I used to lay in bed and be like oh I'm so tired today I can't get up and then I think well how's my day gonna go if I don't get up and do that exercise well it was a downward spiral so I would get up <laughs> I'd get up get out of bed do what it takes and then when I'd be in that water I think wow I feel amazing because the worse you feel if you do apply the tools the most amazing transformation happens you feel incredible that you're like I just felt like suicidal and now I feel on top of the world and the most empowered person. So that contrast really shows you the power of these exercises. Mm -hmm. So I've been drilling that for years, changing my state, elevating my energy so that I can evolve. And that's what Ultimate Alchemist is about. It's about how do you elevate yourself so that you can evolve into a vibration of love and not live in fear. Because most of the population live under courage, which is, you know, the pride and the anger and all of that stuff and shame. And once you get up to courage and you get into the higher levels, then you've got something really powerful to offer. And you attract opportunities that, that are miraculous. So changing your state will change your story, which changes your strategy in life. Because yeah. other strat coping mechanisms are the addictive ones. So you need to have a self-reflective practice and you need to get into your body. Totally, this is yeah. uh, this is your whole intelligence system right here mm. not just here this is this is a fragment this is the ultimate in your yeah. heart yeah yeah i know like i mean before we started this um interview we um did a uh tony robbins thing so to get us in, in into state and yeah getting out in nature freezing cold water doing yeah. things you don't want to do that your mind is going oh no don't do that whatever your mind says do the opposite. Listen to your heart. Listen to your body. Mm. Uh, and I've got this beautiful quote. It comes from India, which is, uh, make your mind your friend, your heart your temple, and your body your teacher. Because the mind isn't the enemy. We have to... One thing that's really helping me move forward is to be the most compassionate communicator with myself so that I can pass that on to other people. Because if I'm berating myself, I'm angry. And I'm not that friendly. To myself. how can I offer anything to anyone else when you're conflicted so being compassionate to myself and that gives me the space to show up and be part of the process and make mistakes and laugh and continue to make you know progress mm, brilliant and so the final question what do you value most and how do you put it into practice I value freedom and sovereignty freedom and sovereignty for me you only get uh, freedom through sovereignty. I think they're quite closely knit. So it's taking responsibility, thought, word, and deed 
letting other people's opinions of you to just fall away and their projections and saying, I know who I am and I'm going to follow through on my dreams. I know that I've been showing up and doing this. You have to really listen to that intuitive voice and that's what gives you the freedom because you know that you've got up every day and I've been drilling my discipline. Things take time and so through honouring that, I think you, you, you're liberated from what other people think all the time because that's a journey in itself as we know and that allows me to live in love because if I'm free of all of that judgment and all that burden of everybody else's opinion, then I can just be present with myself and my process and I can, I can bring love to the process. Mm. So sovereignty and freedom activate love for me. Wow. Yeah. I didn't think about it like that before. But if someone, for example, also values uh, sovereignty, how could they begin exploring that? Like, how could they? Well, I was going to say, a lot of it comes back to respect. Mm -hmm. So for me, <laughs> through, through the challenges of my life, I've, uh, I have this phrase, finding ways to respond with respect in the face of ignorance. And that's even my own ignorance. Okay, I didn't know very well. I, did, I made a mistake. How can I be respectful of myself and not hold myself um, hostage to a lower energy? So with sovereignty, it's about respecting your own process. It's about understanding that you're doing, like I said, with parents, you're doing the best you can with the knowledge and understanding that you have. And through taking that responsibility, ability to respond compassionately, you cultivate sovereignty through respecting your process. Because we're not, we, you know, we're born perfect and then we're kind of corrupted into a, an external realm where we have to meet all these different um, obligations and commitments. And so it's about that internal validation all the time. I respect myself. I know that I'm showing up and that creates a sovereignty because if you respect yourself, you can respect another and their process. And I guess... You know, another good friend of mine said this to me, that my love is unconditional, but my agreements are not. So you have to contract with yourself. You know, um, I hold myself unconditionally in love. If I don't meet my, con if I don't meet my own agreements, then I'm unable to. So what do you do mean when you say that? Do you mean um, like if there's a crossing of boundaries? Yes, mm. yes, I think so. I think that, you know, we have to clearly contract with ourselves and other people what's important to us. And once we do that, we can honour it. So for me, it's been a really clearly defining, how am I relating to this? How, with, with sovereignty, to come back to what you said, am I being affected by external sources? Is that my dad's opinion? Is that the media's opinion? Like about money, there's so much external... You know, I've got that project, Love is the Currency. I had to look at my relationship to food, to money, to my own parents, to my own creativity. And so you have to look at all the different influences that might be making you relate to something in a certain way and go, is that serving me? Do I want that to be my truth in relationship to my art, my, my relationship to men, my relationship to money? So it's letting go of our parents, letting go in society and saying, okay, now I've got the awareness. I'm making a choice. And that for me has been a real self-reflective practice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what is it, that quote that um, an unexamined life is not... Oh, yeah, is a life not worth... Is a life not worth living. Something like that. So yeah. really, with a book, we hold it all in here, all those answers. So get interested in yourself. 
get interested in who you are and who you're becoming, but love yourself, love your being more than you're becoming. Because for me, I used to race ahead with what, who I'm becoming and I would miss the very person in front of me. And that's what Vipassana gave me is the ability to trust that I'm enough in this moment. Wow, beautiful way to end it. I think Thank I am you. enough in this moment. Uh, to be continued, so <laughs> we've got plenty more to um, delve deep into. So um, Celia, if anybody would like to find out a bit more about you, what's the best way to, to reach you or like social media or website or anything? Sure, so you can go to Miss Celia Peachy uh, with an E-Y at the end of Peachy on Instagram or you can go to my website www.celiapeachy.com or you can get me on Ultimate Alchemist on my Facebook and that's it at the moment. I'm available for questions, um, uh, other interviews, talks, whatever, because I'm a public speaker. So I speak about the law of attraction, healthy relationships, creativity, creative healing, and being a sovereign being. Wow. Yeah, I'll make sure to provide um, links to this so everyone will be able to find you very easily. So thank you so much, Celia. This has been a real um, honor and I look forward to, to more conversations with you. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you uh, enjoy this podcast, please uh, subscribe. And if you thought that this episode could benefit um, someone else, uh, please share it with your friends. Um, thank you for listening and I'll catch you next time. Mm -hmm.